Well, hey, folks, welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. This is Lisa Anderson here with you, and we are finishing out the month of March. I can hardly even believe it. We are well into spring, hopefully, most of you around at least the northern hemisphere, such as it is. Um, But anyway, as I usually do, a little bit of what is coming up on the show later on for our inbox, a listener has a friend who's dating someone, and both of them are previously divorced, but the guy has already made some concerning statements about money if they were to get married. And so our listeners kind of wondering, how can I help my friend? How can I answer some of her questions? Are there red flags here? So one of our counselors is going to weigh in on that. And then for our culture segment, Dr. Heather Holloman is a professor at Penn State, and she has written a book on improving your communication skills called The Six Conversations. And so we're going to talk about what it looks like to get better at communicating. You're going to want to stay tuned for that. Okay, time for our roundtable, and I have got a great group of friends here. I have Michael, Brittany, and Megan. Hey, y'all. Hey. How's it going? All right, we're going to have a conversation about long-distance relationships. Specifically, are they problematic? Are they challenging? How do you overcome some of the challenges of being in a long-distance relationship? And so all of you have walked uh, this road in various forms, and so we're going to jump right in here. So... Um, All of you are either married or engaged at this point. So give us a rundown of your experience with long distance dating in general. Like, how did you get into these relationships? How long did they last? Where were you located? How far are we talking here as far as spanning distance? What did your scenario look like? So I'm the engaged gal of the bunch. (laughs) Um, I met my fiance in Southern California, where we're both from. But when we met, I was going to college in Texas, and he was going to college out here in Colorado. So we did long distance for probably seven months, and then I moved out here to Colorado Springs, kind of for job, kind of for something new, kind of to be closer to him. And then we were in the same place for eight months. He graduated, now lives in Ohio, and before we get married... It will have been almost another year and a half, a little Mm. less than, of long distance. Okay. Wow. So So, wait, what? how long were you together in the same town then before he had to move? About eight months. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So wow, that's Mm -hmm. pretty intense. Okay, Megan, how about you? Alex and I's words, it was kind of unique in that it was on and off four different times. So when we met, we dated in person for about one school year. And then he graduated a year before me. So we had then that summer and the following school year, long distance, where he was in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was in Lynchburg, Virginia. So it was only about three hours of a distance. So we got to see each other relatively often during that period. But then I graduated um, and then I moved to Charlotte, followed him. We were back in person again for a summer and then like half of the fall. And we got engaged then. And then he got a job out in Colorado, so he moved here. And then right when we got engaged, pretty much, we went long distance again until we got married, like seven-ish months after that. Okay. So... I feel like there was a little pattern there of him like moving away from you and then you were just kind of like trailing after him. him. (laughs) He's like, oh, she's here. I'm going to move again. Here I go. Here I go. So good (laughs) that you finally sealed the deal and hopefully can stay in the same spot. That's good. Definitely. Okay. Awesome. Michael, how about you? 
Yeah, uh, for Lauren and I, we were long distance for about a year off and on. Our relationship started long distance. Um, I met her through a mutual friend in college. So um, she came to visit and we hung out and hit it off and then started our relationship like a couple months after that long distance, um, after talking on the phone quite a bit and FaceTiming and such. Um, so yeah, it was about a year off and on. I think the longest span we went without really seeing each other much at all was about three to four months. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. What would you guys say was the biggest challenge in doing long distance? And did you expect it to be a challenge or did it just kind of come upon you as like, oh, this is starting to be hard or whatever? How did you kind of navigate that space and realize what the challenges were? For Alex and I, I would say the first thing that comes to mind is that we had started dating in person and then we almost had to like relearn how to date long distance because it was very different. Uh, Like for me, I'm a very like do minded person I like doing things with another person and I'm less communicative in in the sense of like I would prefer to do something with my husband than to sit and talk to him for like three hours like that's just not my (laughs) yeah so but that is a lot of what long distance is Mm -hmm. is like just talking Mm -hmm. and so it was kind of easy for me to like check out a bit in Mm -hmm. that I was able to stay busy and it wasn't like super difficult but I had to learn that for him he needed a lot more of like communication and intentionality and like learning how to be selfless in those moments and I was not always great out of it but we also had to learn how to find activities that worked well long distance so we found like virtual escape rooms that we were able to play and so like we had to get creative Mm -hmm. because me just sitting and talking for an hour every night was just a little hard yeah okay (laughs) good I would say for uh, Lauren and I, the biggest challenge was just the fact that we had similar love languages. We both, physical touch was the main, our our number one love language. And so um, for us, it was hard not being in the same proximity with Mm -hmm. each other just because we were long distance. We weren't able to hold hands or like hug each other at all. It was just purely like um, long distance. And um, and I didn't really even know that was my love language until mm-hmm. I started a long distance relationship. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is really hard. Mm-hmm. So th- I would say that was um, the biggest challenge. And we definitely had to get creative in, in different ways, too, such as um, finding out Netflix parties and mm-hmm. um, Prime. Like they all have uh, extension you can download on Chrome where you can you know, watch a movie together at the same time. And so then we would like um, FaceTime at the same time, like prop our phones up and like do stuff together. Um, like Megan was saying, cause it was hard just to sit um, and talk. I think after two months of staying up for pretty much the entire night talking on the phone, mm-hmm. we kind of ran out of stuff to talk about. Okay. So. <laughs> it gets old quick. Yeah. yeah. The talking definitely got old fast, but it, I still enjoyed it, but it was just, it got to the point where like, we want to do something together. Yeah. Because especially when you don't have shared experiences, it's hard to kind of just come up with your own thing and just talk about it. And the other person's like, okay, well, that sounds nice, but they don't really relate to what you're talking about. So that's a good point. All right, Brittany. I think a struggle for me, well, back to what you were saying about love languages, Michael, I think my love languages long distance are so different than when we're in person together Hmm. because when we're long distance I definitely need more gifts which like always scores the very bottom generally (laughs) for my love language tests and so but when we're long distance and all we're doing is talking and you know yeah you can FaceTime and cook or watch movies but it's still different I still I needed like a little extra something something (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so I ended up being way more I don't want to say needy but I just needed more gifts like more 
surprises knowing that he was thinking about me. And so I think learning the differences of how we relayed love to each other in person versus not Mm -hmm. was a difficult thing to overcome. And FaceTime's great, but I upkeep a lot of relationships over FaceTime. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the talking, like I love to talk, but Mm -hmm. eventually it just becomes draining. And so I think you just get tired of it sometimes. And that's when it's easier to throw on a movie or something and be like, hey, let's just sit in peace and not talk. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's good. So talking the flip side of that, you know, the benefits of long distance, like a lot of people wouldn't think there would be a lot of benefits. And of course, everyone's grandma would be like, this wasn't even a thing like when I was dating. But clearly a benefit, especially for Christian young adults dating, would be the, the proximity removes some of the sexual temptation or at least the ability to act on it, you know, in that sense, even for those who have love languages of physical affection and physical touch, or especially maybe in that case. Um, So I would say, you know, we probably could say that would be a benefit. But are there other things that you learned about yourself or about um, your fiance or your spouse when you were forced to communicate and relate to one another and keep the relationship alive without being in one another's uh, physical space? I would say that it definitely builds character. Mm. I would say that's definitely a pretty big benefit of long distance because it's a really hard thing. And, you know, going several months or even a year without um, being able to be near each other, it definitely builds character in the way that um, you learn how to communicate better with each other. You learn how to be more affirming to each other and communicate in those ways. So I I would say that um, once Lauren and I got married, a lot of those things we had already really worked on before we got married because mm-hmm. of long distance. Um, I know that a lot of the relationships and um, people that I know, sometimes they have to work on that after they get married because they were just so used to just hanging out and um, just caught up in the relationship and everything, and they never really focused on the communication aspect of it. So I would say that's a huge benefit for sure. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think it also helps to make you appreciate what you do have when you're in person. Like when you date only in person, you don't really think about the small things that you do think about when you're long distance. For example, when we were long distance, there would be moments where we would visit each other. And I found consistently I would just like never know where my phone was because I would never touch it because I was so engaged with like what we were doing or talking. And it was kind of a funny trend where like it would be like the afternoon. I'd be like, I don't even know where my phone is because I've just been so here with you. And it's a blessing to be able to have those moments to look back on and really remember like this was something I was so excited to have and I was so desperate to reach this point and now we're here and I want to remember that perspective to like appreciate like the blessing that it is to be in person with someone Mm -hmm. and I also think it helps you with trust Mm -hmm. is like because there's a lot of times where you're like in positions where you can't get the same amount of like affirmation or affection that you can get in person and you try and fill those buckets as much as you can but it's just different Mm -hmm. so it allows you an ability to be like I trust what my partner is saying Mm -hmm. and in moments when I'm not with him I'm able to like grow that feeling and that I know like we can't fulfill all these things but he's there and he's choosing me and I'm choosing to trust that in the moments when it's hard Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. I think that kind of goes along with independence too Mm -hmm. because I don't think that long distance is for the clingy necessarily. Like if you need to be near someone 24-7 and you can't have a life apart, Mm -hmm. then it's just like not going to work out or go smoothly. And so I think it really taught Nathaniel and I how to 
have our own lives separately and grow individually and then also be able to grow in communication, to grow together, which is something that we pray about all the time. And yeah, it forces you to trust the other person because without that, like you are out there living your independent lives and you have to trust that they're still focused on you and still focused on the love holding your relationship together. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a great point. You actually bring that up, Brittany, which I think I was thinking through this as you all were talking of like, an unexpected benefit probably is that it forces you to cultivate other relationships. I think a lot, you know, a pitfall that a lot of dating couples get into is just being all into each other and they shut out everyone around them. And so, you know, hopefully you're not just going to be glued to texting or FaceTime or whatever and just still be gazing into that person's eyes, even digitally. Um, But you are going to allow yourself some time to be like, yeah, what does it look like for me to be independent and and be my own person and engage in other things and stuff? And it's a good uh, growing opportunity for that to happen. I think that's really good. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about the whole conversations around where when you're together, like ultimately, you know, now Brittany, you're getting married, but now the other two of you are married, where you're going to end up. Because especially, you know, people who meet online or whatever, someone has to make the decision at some point that you're going to move, whether that's after engagement or after marriage or whatever. And I know you guys, some of your scenarios were college, you know, but then there were moves involved, obviously, you know, now you've got a dude in Ohio, Brittany. I mean, it's Mm kind of like, How do you have conversations around like, okay, when we make this thing official and we get married, where are we going to land and and negotiating what that's going to look like? How is how have those conversations been? Well, I'll start because my answer (laughs) is probably more simple than y'all's because Nathaniel's in the military and he will be a pilot. And so for the next 12 ish years, we just go where the military tells us. <laughs> okay. So you don't of, even have to decide. No, we don't. Be ha- <laughs> yeah, we don't have to decide. So it's more right now. It's like, well, we really like Colorado Springs. Don't know if we'd go back to Southern California, but we have 12 years and who knows like mm-hmm. where we'll end up. Yeah. So. It's probably more just the exercise for you of reconciling yourself to the fact that you're not going to have a choice for that time, which is easy and hard. It's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because that is because I know you're very close to your family and all of that. So you're like, Mm -hmm. who knows where we're going to get sent. So that's a good point. Mm -hmm. All right. How about you two? For us, it was it wasn't really a big like intentional conversation we had. I find that it was kind of a natural like flow in that. Alex was the one who had just landed his first like big job. He was very excited about it. It was had opportunity for growth. It was just like the job where you plant yourself for it. And it happened to be close to his family. And he really did a good job of like preparing a place for us. So he was like making a home and getting the apartment and like trying to find us a church. And so he was doing all these things to like plant ourselves and make it a very smooth transition for me. And it was never like... A conversation that I felt like I should push back on because it just made the most sense. Mm-hmm. I was like living with my parents in between times when I was planning the wedding. I didn't have a huge job. I didn't have anything on the horizon job wise. So it just made the most sense for us. Um, mm-hmm. 
and and it is very convenient and a blessing that his family does happen to be only an hour away from mm-hmm. us. So okay. Yeah. Now to that point, though, have there also been challenges in feeling like did did you ever have feelings of like being shoehorned into his family experience and how you know how do you craft your own reality and your own you know family experience when it's kind of like this is my turf. <laughs> um, I don't think so. I mean, I think there was an objective acknowledgement on my half of like, this is less comfortable than if he had been the one joining my family. Mm -hmm. I'm very close to my family. And of course, moving so far from them is very hard. But I think I was also aware, like he feels the same way about his family. And like, I want to be able to get close to my in-laws. I know that this is just a part of life. So once again, I felt like it was just like, oh, of course, this is what happens when you get married, Mm -hmm. is that you're typically closer to one family. And sometimes it's not as good, but we also plan on moving closer to my family at some point. So it's like Mm -hmm. you have to give and take in all areas of marriage. So it, it, it didn't feel hard for me. to decide that, even though sometimes it is physically harder to do than it would be to live with my family. And it just sounds like being able to have open conversations about it is very helpful and have Mm -hmm. expectations and put them on the table. That's good. All right, Michael, how about you? The decision of where you would land and any future plans or whatever, what did that look like? Yeah, I would say that that was a um, kind of a terrifying conversation for us. (laughs) Um, I overthought that a lot during our relationship. And there were several times where I was just like, look, you, you want to do this with your career. I want to do this with my career. So it's just not going to work out, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I just could not find a way to make it work in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, just our career paths were so different. And so, but I kind of started to realize throughout our relationship that like, if God wants us together and he wants us to um, be in a relationship and get married, then he's going to provide. And so um, Lauren actually graduated college before I did. So she um, was starting the job search. I think she graduated about five months before I did, mm-hmm. five to six months before I did. Um, so I just told her, I was like, whoever gets the job first, that's where we're going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so she, you know, obviously found a job first mm-hmm. um, before I even um, graduated college. So that was here mm-hmm. um, in the Springs. Um, at first, she had her internship over the summer of 2021 and then mm-hmm. um, got hired on full time. So um, I was like, all right, well, I'll figure it out. So mm-hmm. um, we both moved here to the Springs. I didn't have to move very far because I was in Denver, okay. but she moved from Arizona. So mm-hmm. for her, it was a pretty big move. And she had to leave a lot of her friends in college in SoCal. And it was just really tough for her. But mm-hmm. um that was definitely something I was really terrified of. And um, just looking back, I'm just seeing how much God provided mm-hmm. and like how much anxiety I could have just like left mm-hmm. to the side because of that. Like we're both, you know, here in the Springs, we love it here and that's yeah. what we're doing. So cool. Yeah. So what would you guys say? Um, is there anything that you would do differently if you had to do long distance all over again or just advice for someone who's in a long distance relationship, something that they would absolutely have to prioritize? What's kind of your best advice, um, either, you know, a cautionary tale <laughs> scenario or something that you're just like, absolutely, this has to happen? I think you have to be very communicative of whether you f- are feeling loved, whether you're feeling attended to whether you're feeling like you're being made a priority because those things look so differently long distance so there's really no room for you to just kind of be quiet and let it like simmer because it's just going to be so much worse so if you're feeling like a lack like you need to say 
in a, you know, understanding way. Like, I, you might not be trying to do this, but I need you to know that I'm feeling this way and let's try and figure out a way that I can avoid feeling this way. Like, you have to do that so much more because all you do have is, like, that communication. And that's so important because if you just neglect it all, then it's just all kind of fizzle out your entire relationship, most likely. Mm-hmm. So, I feel like long distance hasn't been bad i feel like it gets a bad rap i mean obviously i would love to be closer to nathaniel and if we didn't have to do long distance that would be great i've gotten used to it so honestly i'm kind of happy the end is nearing but i would say to try your hardest to give the best to the other person i think one of the hardest things is that when you talk to your significant other when you're long distance, it's usually at the end of the day, like you've worked all day, you've probably worked out, you've showered, you've eaten, like, you know, your day's kind of over and then you're ready for bed and you're like, oh yeah, hey, like let's talk for an hour while you're exhausted. So I think just being maybe a little more selfless than you think you might need to be in the relationship and doing your best to give it your 100% no matter what point of the day it is in because I think that's been one of our biggest struggles is always ending up talking when we're the most exhausted. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, I would agree with um, both of them on you know communication and just giving it your best. I say commitment and communication are just super important um, if you're going to be in a long-distance relationship. Uh, it's just super important to um, show that person that you're committed to them and that you're going to be loyal to them because they might be a thousand miles away and they don't know what you're doing, but they know that you're not, you know, being unloyal to them. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's just super important. And yeah, I don't have anything else to say other than I agree with both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's a great point. So, well, awesome, you guys. I think these are some great thoughts. I think there are so many people who are afraid to even try long distance because they think, you know, can the relationship survive this or whatever? But to know that it's possible and know that, you know, it's not going to be a relationship killer necessarily, but to put some intention into it, some thought and some prayer is a great way to uh, start, I think, for any of us. So thanks, you guys, for weighing in.
Well, folks, we're here for this week's culture segment on The Boundless Show and introducing you to another friend, a new friend who I actually um, I had to tell her that I already knew about her because I spoke at a conference last year that she did as well, though she had to be remote. So I didn't actually get to meet her. Um, but she's just that big and important that she can just pipe in and be remote. <laughs> and so <laughs> her name is Heather Holloman. Uh, she is an associate teaching professor at Penn State, where she teaches advanced writing. And she's also an author. She's a speaker. Um, she is the author, actually, of the book that we're going to talk about today, which I think you all are going to be pretty excited about. It is called The Six Conversations, Pathways to Connecting in an Age of Isolation and Incivility. And so, Heather, welcome to The Boundless Show. Oh, I am so excited about our conversation. Thank you for having me. Well, this is going to be really fun. We are going to talk about literally conversations and communication. And I think this is really interesting because I feel like we could approach this a couple different ways. In some ways, when I talk to people, it's one of these things where Everyone tends to think they're generally a good conversationalist. It's just everyone else that's bad. And so there's like a little bit of a like, oh, yeah, you know, well, I feel like I'm pretty good at this and I'm pretty interesting and I have a lot to share and whatever, <laughs> but everyone else is so bad. Or people are, and I, th I feel like this has gotten worse since COVID, like I would just rather not talk to anyone and I would rather just, you know, do things digitally. And of course, introverts kind of reign in this space talking about how if they never had to talk to anyone the rest of their life, it would be awesome. So give us a little bit of insight into that, Heather, because obviously you teach, you're working with young adults every single day. Why do we have kind of this dearth of communication ability in our culture today? Or has it always been like this? Is this just something we have to go after more intentionally? I do think it's getting worse. I think we've lost the art of conversation for various reasons. But students often talk about just being very lonely and not being able to figure out how to begin and continue meaningful conversations. So there's a lot of different factors that, that go into that part of it is, you know, COVID isolation, the use of phones. And one of the things that my students say is the problem with texting is you have a lot of time to craft a really clever response and you can really, you know, manage your conversation. But once you're in person, you can get really nervous and not know what to say, not know what questions to ask. There's also a culture of real self-involvement, meaning we've lost the art of interpersonal curiosity, how to ask good questions of other people. Yeah, so true. Well, and actually, that's a great springboard for us uh, to talk about this next topic, and that is the actual four mindsets for loving yes. conversations that you mentioned in the book. And your first one, incidentally, is to be curious. Why is that so significant? Explain to us a little bit about what that means and then why it's so important to good conversations. Well, it's such a great mindset. You really need that mindset of curiosity in order to begin a warm and meaningful connection with someone. And people always complain, you know, I went on a date and the guy didn't ask me one question or I went home yet to see my parents and I haven't seen them and nobody asked me one question. So we see this a lot of just this lack of asking good questions. So when I teach people about what curiosity is, it's a disposition of your heart where you really believe the person in front of you is of infinite value. They can teach you something. You know, it's a way of enacting Philippians 2, where you take on the nature of a servant and consider the interest of other people above your own. And I, I like to look at Romans 12, the idea of honoring one another, you know, and, and we don't do that in conversation 
when we fail to be curious about other people. Now, I love the social science research that talks about how curiosity is such a joyful state. People who are curious are happier. They're more creative. Their mental and physical health are better because they're starting the foundation of those warm connections. So I, th- I tell my students curiosity is the number one professional development skill. Yeah, it is so good. And it's so funny how, because um, I feel like in a lot of things, I, I love to ask questions of people. I mean, I guess it's good that I host a, a podcast. But I think in tandem with that is the skill of being an active listener, because mm-hmm. you can ask a question, and I easily see myself getting into this. I ask a question, and then I'm anticipating their answer. And I've like answered my own question in my head before they even have a chance to share where they are. And then I can be an interrupter, I can be dismissive, I can be. So again, there's kind of a two pronged approach to that of like, ask the question, but then be ready to learn and receive. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Let's talk through a couple of the other mindsets. Um, You have two and three as believing the best and expressing concern. And I feel like even, again, as Christians, I mean, it's like, hello, like we need to grow in this all around the board. So talk to us a little bit about why believing the best in a conversation is necessary from the get-go and what that means toward expressing concern for someone. Well, in this population that I care most about, the college age and the young professional, they really want to be be received by someone without judgment. And the research term is unconditional positive regard, meaning they want to feel like people like them and they're not judging them. So believing the best about someone is choosing, once you're curious about them, truly believing good things about that person. Believe that they have something to teach you. Believe that they are, you know, this marvel that God has created. But the problem is what's happening now in the culture is when you meet someone, you're not thinking that. You're thinking, who did they vote for? What did they believe about vaccines? What was their position on Roe v. Wade? So instead of believing the best, we're approaching people with suspicion and judgment. So I teach the art of persuasion, and I talk a lot about how to find common ground with your audience and really come at them from a position of love like that. And it's wonderful. It's a very hard skill to develop because we're used to being really judgmental. But believing the best really does. It's a biblical mindset. It's approaching people with that kind of unmerited favor that God demonstrates to us with that idea of grace. So believing the best, you got believing, you know, look, this person can teach me something. Yeah. It's so interesting you say that because I think even in, you know, the other thing that we're we're terrible at generally is in uh, doing conversations that involve some kind of hard conversation or conflict or whatever. And believing the best is so helpful there too, because I often have to go in when I have to deal with something, whether it's at work or maybe someone has offended me or whatever. And I tell myself, okay, Lisa, Do you think that this person's number one goal is to completely derail your entire life? I mean, (laughs) do they do they do they hate you so much that their you know their primary priority is to just make your life miserable? And I have to answer truthfully, no. And so, where might there be miscommunication, misunderstanding, hurt feelings, and approach it from that way, where you are believing the best about this person would love to come to resolution in this? I'm sure. So why don't we work towards that instead of lay and making an enemy out of the other person. No, that's right. And something I learned in my research is that it's not enough just to believe the best about someone. You have to do what's called expressing liking. Hmm. As I read research, you know, from the Yale Relationship Lab and different studies, teaching young people to actually be the kind of people that say things like, 
hey, I really like being with you, or I'm really enjoying my time with you, teaching people to compliment and to especially share a memory that you had together. Like if I hadn't seen you or say, Lisa, that we knew each other and I hadn't seen you in a while. And I said, Lisa, I was just thinking about you the other day. And remember that time we did this, you would begin to feel a warm connection with me because we're sharing a memory. So it's it's a really good practice to to always when you're with someone express what's called liking. So that's part of believing the best. And the other way to believe the best is actually implement your curiosity mindset. If someone is from a different political position or does something that you disagree with, stay curious and say to them, I can tell this is really important to you. I'm so curious. What's the story behind when you first adopted that position? I really want to know why you believe that or tell me more. If you stay curious, it's going to prevent anger, suspicion, judgment. Curiosity is just a beautiful way to think. So yeah. I, I think that will help some people listening. Yeah. Well, I also like, um, speaking of expression, I like how you flesh out mindset number three, which is express concern. And you describe it as this willingness to carry each other's burdens. So that entering yes. into something with someone else, which is so counterintuitive because it's such, you know, we will all say that everyone we come into contact with, we meet so many takers and so many users yes. and so many like they're going to be the person who's going to glom onto you and be all about like unburdening themselves on you so how do we flip the script on that in order to be the person that wants to give and wants to invest in another person well mutually investing i mean that's how you get those warm and loving connections and it's an easy mindset to think about when you think about galatians 6 this idea of carrying each other's burdens just think about three things when you're with someone think what is this person's major stressor? What thought is keeping them up at night? And what's their next major decision? Mm -hmm. I'm not asking anyone to like take on huge emotional burdens. These aren't therapeutic conversations. These are conversations of simple, warm, loving connection. So after I read that research, I went across the street to my neighbor and I just said to her, look, I have been a terrible friend. We, I feel out of touch. Just tell me what is going on. What's the major stressor this week? You know, or, you know, what decision is, is weighing on you? And what happens is I can go back the next week and say, you know, that thing you told me about, how did that presentation go? Or I know you guys were trying to decide whether or not you do this or that. Showing that kind of investment, what's happening is when you're curious, you believe the best, you're now expressing concern. You have the foundation for the warm and loving connection that really is the prologue to a happy life, according to all the research on well-being. Mm -hmm. So you want to express concern and ask people, you know, what's happening with them. And it's great to do in a professional setting. It's great for families and friends. It's just a wonderful way to kind of go about your day. Yeah. Well, and I think that perfectly flows into the fourth mindset, which you describe as mutual sharing, which again, I will kind of uh, springboard from a point of concern, which is, okay, well, what do I do? Like, is there a way to model yeah. this? Because I feel like, what if you're just like constantly asking good questions of another person? You're the one that's curious. You're the one, but you're never getting anything in return. <laughs> do you like go to this person yes. and say, can I just talk to you about your conversational deficits and how you can grow well, in this area? What does that Lisa, look like? <laughs> Lisa, that's actually the number one question that my husband and I 
will often get when we lead workshops and training, people will say, okay, great. I'm, I'm trained. I'm going to ask all these questions <laughs> yeah. and I'm just going to be lonely. I have my you know, certificate on, my on this. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, once we were out with a couple for eight hours, that was a very mature Christian couple. We could not wait to spend the day with them. Lisa, we were with them eight hours and they did not ask us one question we left you know feeling has that ever happened to you like you're so excited to be with someone uh, and they just don't okay so here's like every date i've yes. ever been on heather yes. let's be so honest here's, okay here is a great um well because we're talking about you sharing your life so i i have two things that that i want people to think about the first is if you really um are in a conversation it is okay to pivot and say you know if someone's talking about something that relates to you after they've had plenty of time to share it is appropriate to say, like, for example, if someone's talking about a major decision, you could say, you know what, I relate to that so much last week, you know, that decision I had to make, it, it just about killed me, you know, you can share appropriately. But if someone will not ask you a meaningful question, here's what I've been doing lately, I've literally been training people <laughs> in the art of conversation by saying this, I have really enjoyed asking you these questions, I am loving this conversation, I cannot wait to hear what question you're now going to ask me mm-hmm. and then just pause. Mm-hmm. They'll feel really bad. They'll say, I don't know. I don't, you know, what do I say? And I'll say, well, there's actually six pathways, mm-hmm. you know, go ahead and tell them, you know, sometimes people will say, you know, Heather, you're really good at asking questions. How do you come up with things to ask? I can't believe like, how are you doing this? This is the best conversation I've ever had. It's because I'm going through the six dimensions of what it means to be human asking questions in those categories. And you're, you're never going to get lost in conversation again when you implement these simple strategies. Yeah, for sure. I think so many people approach conversations um, without intention, and they just assume that something amazing is going to happen organically. But really, you've got to have kind of, you know, some purpose behind it, I think, otherwise it could fall flat. Um, and you actually talk through, you, you say that there are goals for conversations yes. that you should have. Yes. And I thought that these were really helpful kind of give us an overview uh, just a little bit of what some of those are and how we can be thinking towards that without making a conversation seem like a big project or some kind of a, you know, personal growth exercise. Oh, no, you're going to love this. And I love this because this really changes the culture around family, around your workspaces, and when you're hanging out with your friends. What if every conversation ended in one of three ways? Number one, you're talking to someone, you're thinking, how can I encourage this person. And that is very biblical. Think about the verse that's like, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building people up according to their needs. Can you imagine how refreshing that would be if you had a friend that was just encouraging like that? Number two, helping people in their personal goals. This is such a joyful conversation. Like if I were to say, Lisa, I'm so interested in like, what projects are you working on? And say, you tell me about them. And I can say, okay, I have absolutely nothing to offer in that area. But if I were to help or support you, let me know how I could do that. Well, guess what? We have a great, you know, warm connection there. It's something where the conversation is ending in a place that's, you know, helpful to you. And then it also helps get me involved in your life. And so helping people with personal goals. And the last one is so exciting because the social science research says this if you can end a conversation in a state of awe or marveling, it is a closeness enhancing behavior. Meaning if you and I go outside and we see the snow falling in Colorado where you are and you say, Heather, isn't God amazing the way, you know, he didn't have to make snowflakes. Like let's 
talk about this, we get into a state of marveling, we're going to feel closer. And that conversation is going to end in so much joy. As a Christian, I'm always looking for divine activity and calling it out in conversation. So if someone mentions something that seems like an answer to prayer or something marvelous that maybe God intervened in some way, I love saying, oh, that sounds amazing. That sounds like God, you know, really took care of you there. And before you know it, uh, we're less isolated, we're connected, we feel um, warmly involved with each other because we're experiencing a state of marvel or what the research calls awe. Hmm. That's good. And I'm glad you gave a practical example of that, because I think sometimes we can think of that like marvel or awe, and we're like, that sounds super out there, like, woohoo, like, what am oh, I no. supposed to, you know, it's like people are like, yeah. how do I manufacture this? I'm just trying to get through my day. So that was yes. good. That is a great way yes. of just naturally experiencing something and sharing it with another person. Yes, um, it is the hardest to do, but the, it has the biggest payoff. It's a great growth area to think, how can I lead conversations to a state of marveling. Yeah. Okay. So clearly in contrast to that, then there have to be conversation killers um, that are out there, like things that are just like, this is not good. This is not, this might be a pitfall, you know, that you need to be aware of as you know, many of us have been in that, like the trapped car or room or something where you're just like, I'm not ordained to low where you're like, this is, I'm, we're not going to emerge from this alive. Uh, What are some things to watch out for? (laughs) Well, I do list 10 that actually thwart encouragement, personal growth and marveling. But the two that I think everyone should really work on in terms of it. These are almost like discipleship tools, Lisa. This is really about Christian maturity. So the two things you want to avoid are arrogance and advice giving, Mm -hmm. meaning people do not like to feel inferior or condescended to, and nobody really wants advice unless they ask you for it. And it's really rare. So for example, if someone's talking to me at work and I say to them, okay, you've just presented a problem do you want me to give you advice or would you rather me continue to ask, you know, meaningful questions? Hmm. Guess what? Nobody wants advice. (laughs) They'll tell me if they want advice or they'll go to the doctor or their therapist. Uh, Friendship is really about mutual sharing Mm -hmm. and advice can really crush conversations. And, and, you know, I have people in my life that sometimes they're walking down the street. I don't want to open up to them because all they're going to do is tell me advice for 20 minutes. So those are the two I would avoid. And um, other things like the complaining and gossip, things that you know, scripture warns about, you know, those are things that we just need to be aware of and try to change our conversational patterns more towards encouragement and marveling rather than always complaining or gossiping. Okay. So give us an example, give us a tactic or two of how, like, say we're in a conversation with that friend who is stuck in some kind of cycle, like in life, they are just stuck. (laughs) And we have heard this same scenario and this same song and dance from them about how their job is horrible. Their relationship is horrible. They hate where they live. They whatever. How, if we're not going to give advice, which I feel like I always have such good advice, Heather, I would, if people just, I know how everyone (laughs) should be behaving. And the fact is they don't. And then I'm just irritated that they're not, you know, taking my amazing advice. So tell us what's a great way to introduce or maybe just move the ball a little bit. Like you said, the questions or how do we go about that? All right. There are three things you can do in that situation. Number one, it is appropriate to say to someone, hey, I just want you to know I'm experiencing you as complaining about this all the time. Do you mean to come off that way? Mm -hmm. 
sometimes people are not aware of how you're experiencing them. I've said that to friends who gossip all the time. And I was like, look, every time we talk, I just experience you as gossiping all the time. Do you mean to be that way? And usually they'll say, oh my gosh, is that what people think about me? I had no idea. I'm a complainer. Okay. The second thing you can do is actually something a trauma expert taught me that when someone's in like a spiral of like distress or confusion or complaint, you can say, look, I know we keep talking about this. What choices do you have? What is your next choice? Because it empowers them that you give them agency. They're not stuck in this. You know, it's this thing that they can do, you know, next. Okay. The other thing I learned, and it's probably the number one thing I learned when researching this book, the number one most exciting thing I learned was how to listen and what to listen for. If your friend is complaining, 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 notice what is the root of that complaint and be able to say to that person, this is what it's called. It's called listening for core values. You can say to them, every time you complain, I've noticed you talk about, say, for example, being bored, having this same routine. And you said to this person, when you talk, I can tell you really value adventure. I think that's what the problem is. And then you move them into like, hey, what can we do here? You need more adventure in your life. I've done this with so many people who present problems that instead of looking at the problem, I'm listening for what is the core value. So my neighbor who I was trying to build a warm connection with, he, I asked him if he was simply going to the basketball game and this is what he said. Well, I was going to go, but my wife changed plans on me. And then my son changed this itinerary. And then my daughter was 30 minutes late. And I said to him, as you're talking, I can tell that you're really someone who values your schedule and you're so orderly. And he stopped and said, oh my gosh, I do. I really do value those things. And he said to me and my daughter, keep walking with me. He felt so loved just that I would stop that spiral and say, look, I see you. I know what you care about here. And we're going to move the conversation into something much richer and much more beautiful. So I love listening for core values. I have more friends and I know what to do with at work because I started saying that like, hey, I know what your core value is. It's also great with teens. You're not judging them. You're saying, look, as you're talking, I can tell you value this thing. It may be different from what you value as a mom or dad. But being able to say, I hear you, I know you value this, and then you can move on with that warm connection. Okay. So kind of in our our last minute here that we have, I definitely want you to address, like, I feel like most of us feel confident or at least hopeful about having conversations and growing in conversations with people within our own tribe. You know, you alluded to earlier how we've all just lost our minds over things in the political landscape, vaccines, uh, every debate on every issue that's out there. So how, I mean, you know, we're about to enter another big national election cycle. How can we build friendships with and have reasonable conversations with people without them getting into issues that are going to divide us and just actually see them as people and be friends with people and do barbecues with people without having to like collectively lose our minds over the dividing points. Well, that's what I love so much about the six conversational pathways. So everyone that you look at, there's six dimensions to them. They're social. You can always ask like, hey, who have you been hanging out with? You know, they're they're physical. Ask people how they've been sleeping. Ask about their bodies, their aging bodies, or or how, you know, if they play sports, how, you know, are they dealing with any injuries? 
what you're talking about with the political landscape is really the cognitive realm. That's only one of six pathways. So you don't always have to be in the realm of ideas. So social, physical, emotional, you can ask people volitional questions, which is how did you decide this? Or what are you going to decide about this? People love talking about their choices, the cognitive, which I just said, but also the spiritual. So when I'm with, you know, we live on a street where probably everyone you know, voted differently or have different ideas, but that's only one dimension of what it means to be human. My neighbor who believes the exact opposite of me on almost every social issue, when I come across the street and I say, hey, I know you guys had that slumber party for your daughter. Are you exhausted? Did you guys get any sleep last night? That's a much different conversation than me walking across the street saying, how dare you vote for that candidate, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So remember the six dimensions of being human. And you're also going to find out what people enjoy talking about. If you're with someone and you just can't get the conversation going, it's probably because you're in a conversational pathway that they don't enjoy. That's why I loved having Gary Chapman of the five languages write this forward, because it's really a love language. My daughter, for example, loves when I ask about her friends. She loves the social category of conversation. Teens love the physical category. They love talking about anything related to their room, physical spaces, you know, something about their clothes or their hair. If you say to someone, I love your hair, how did you get it that way? You're going to hear more about products, (laughs) hair products, you know, Mm -hmm. or I ask my my students all the time, how are you sleeping at night, guys? I've learned more about ASMR, lavender, melatonin, you know, (laughs) So I recommend going through the six pathways, knowing that you can have great relationships with people. And once you have that warm and loving connection, because you're operating out of the four mindsets, what's going to happen is when the time comes to talk about a political idea, nobody's in a reactive brain state because you're already warmly connected. So for example, many people say, Heather, how are you able to talk about Jesus all the time? And you still stay friends with atheists and people of all different persuade, you know, all different religions. I was like, well, because evangelism is never a sales pitch or a pivot from a conversation. We're warmly connected. So when it's my time to share something, I believe that warm connections there. So they're listening, we're sharing our lives. And that's how to create social change is when you're interpersonally connected and can share ideas in a loving way. So I really think the six conversations is an intervention into this culture of isolation and incivility. Yeah, so good. Well, folks, um, there is so much more in this book that we've been talking about. And so I want to let you know that the six conversations, again, Pathways to Connecting in an Age of Isolation and Incivility, is available to you from Boundless for a gift of any amount to Boundless. So if you go to boundless.org, you're going to search for 791. That's this week's episode. And you'll see the book cover there. Just click on it. You give a gift to Boundless, whatever you can afford um, for the work that we're already doing, the community we have for you as a young adult. And we will send a copy of Heather's book as our thank you to you. And so Heather, thank you so much for penning this, for walking it out with your students and beyond. Uh, Super helpful principles and practical application of, of something we all need to go after. You're welcome. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. The first day that
Well, folks, we are finishing out the show by opening up our inbox, and we have got our fantastic counselor, Tim Sanford, here. Hey, Tim. Hey, good to be back. (laughs) Good to have you. Um, All right. We've got a little bit of a doozy here that is both a practical life question as well as a relational question. And quite frankly, we've got some theology (laughs) potential in here because, you know, WWJD, I don't know on this one. Um, This is good. Thank you to the person who wrote this in because, Tim, we're going to need some wisdom on this. Um, Our listener says, I have a friend who's divorced and she has a three-year-old son. Through a Christian dating agency, she met a man 15 years older than herself who's also divorced. She likes him a lot and they get along well. However, he says if they will get married, two things will happen. One, money would not be shared. Each person has his or her bank account and uses one's own money to buy things. And number two, they should make a contract. In case of divorce, there would be no dividing of assets or money shared. Each person would keep what belonged to them before. He had a bad experience with his first wife. She feels Christians should share, and she sees a lot of mistrust in this proposal. How would you counsel her? And this is a doozy here, Lisa, with that. <laughs> the first thing in in my professional experience as well as my personal experience as a dad of daughters is slow things way down. Mm-hmm. With the information we have, I'm not going to jump off the cliff and say yes or no for sure, but for sure, slow things way down. I can understand this guy's concern about, as we say, being taken to the cleaners again, if that was bad for his first wife. But there's still some red flags here for me because it seems like he hasn't dealt with his first marriage, his first divorce in a healthy way yet. Mm-hmm. So that's something for him to still look at. Um, the other thing that I kind of wonder about is what is he really wanting then in a marriage? Mm-hmm. Which begs the question, what is she really wanting in a marriage? So take the time to really look at those things, answer that question real hard. I mean, yes, a 15-year age difference is not out of the question. It's not illegal. It's not unbiblical. No. It does beg the question as a clinician, though, is she looking for a husband? Is she looking for a father figure? Mm -hmm. Again, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to assume that honor, but that's a legitimate question that she would need to really take a look at and think for herself as it goes. The last thing that really gets me a little bit concerned, there's no mention about how they're going to handle the three-year-old son. I mean, three-year-olds grow up, they get expensive, there's school supplies. If they get into sports or music or art, there's those kinds of extracurricular finances. What about college? If she's basically going to be a single parent financially, Mm -hmm. how is she going to fund everything for this three-year-old son that's now that age? So that's a concern, just a question for me. Is he going to be involved in this boy's life at all? Mm -hmm. Um, So those are some of the things. So with that being said, yes, slow everything way down. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another suggestion I would make is actually get some pre-engagement counseling. Mm -hmm. Before you get engaged, if you're going that direction, even maybe now, and not with a pastor, with a licensed clinician that does premarital kind of work, but also can pick up on if there's any other mental health issues here, either for her or for this gentleman here, so that they can work on those now before it gets down the road. Because once emotions get caught up and once you get going down that track, it's hard to slow things down. So those would be some of the things I would say. And yeah, just really slow it way down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. It's interesting because as I read this, my first thought was, 
I was mostly concerned with just the attitude that he's kind of putting towards this relationship in the Mm -hmm. sense of like, I feel like he wants this relationship to be entirely on his terms with like no risk on his part, you know, and I'm like, any relationship is a risk. I mean, you can't just say like sign on the dotted line that like nothing is ever going to go awry here. I mean, my goodness, you know, it's it's almost like a you know, puts him in the position of power, which is kind of like, is this going to be a partnership or not? And it doesn't seem very spiritually healthy to me. Well, there doesn't seem like a whole lot of two becoming one flesh here, Lisa. And so I think you're right with that. And I think that's coming from, again, his either hasn't dealt with, you know, his previous marriage and divorce, or if this is really how selfish and self-focused he is, that's a huge red flag too. Yeah, yeah. And it just might not even be that marriage is for him again, or at least right now, but she needs to decide, as you said on the front end of your response, what does she want in this relationship? And to be willing to go after that and be willing to have some boundaries in saying, here's what I feel like this should be. So Yeah, and you hopefully she's looking for more than a legal roommate. Right. Yeah. Such a good point. So well thank you so much, Tim, for weighing in on that. Um, Folks, we always love it when we hear from you. And specifically, I hope you are aware of our social channels, both on Facebook and Instagram. On Facebook, we are at uh, Boundless.org. And Instagram, we are Boundless Team. So find us, follow us, join the conversation. We have lots of fun conversations there around some of the content that we're putting out and just navigating life as a young adult. So we hope to see you over there. In the meantime, I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless. Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family. Hey everybody, here the latest episode of my podcast, Refocus with Jim Daly. Dr. John Lennox talks about how we need to show both love and truth to others. Love and truth they find difficult to put together because love without truth becomes sloppy sentiment and truth without love becomes hard. And can be vicious. Dr. Lennox will help you overcome barriers when sharing your faith on the next Refocus with Jim Daly.